You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Bob Hughes. There's grace for every kind of weather, right? Weather shouldn't affect us like we're dependent on the nice day, although it is nice, isn't it? Unusually beautiful spring. All right. It's great to be together. My name is Bob Hughes. I'm part of the pastoral team here at Grace, and it is great to be together with you. We have, uh, uh, I'm doing the second part of a little brief series on Psalms 1 and 2. And uh, we hit Psalm 1 two weeks ago before Father's Day. And today we're going to look at Psalm 2. And this is called The Battle for the Narrative, Christ's Kingdom Reign. So if you turn in your Bibles or in your device with me to Psalm 2, if you don't have a Bible, please take a look under the chair in front of you. Help yourself to one and turn to page 254. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please take that as our gift to you. If it's one of those chewed up Bibles, tuck it back and grab a little nicer one, a chair or so down. Hopefully you get a nice one if we're giving it as a gift. Um, let's see here. Also, if you have any questions, as we hit this topic, there's, you know, it's impossible to cover everything you want to cover in a brief Sunday morning message. So if you have questions, we, we do a thing that's called Grace Church Conversations every week after the Sunday message. So if you have questions, you can text them into the number here on the screen, and then Tuesday evening, we get together, we, rec- we do a little recording, and it's fun and interactive, but it's also an opportunity to hit some of the stuff that we're not able to cover in a brief message. So please make the most of that. We'd, l- we'd love to answer any questions you may have, and won't be surprised if you have some or if we're not clear enough, okay? All right, let's read together. Psalm chapter 2, and we're going to read the whole thing. This is God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray one more time before we jump in. Lord, we uh, just thank you for this new song we got to sing this morning. Lord, we, we just pray, let your kingdom come here, Lord, in a greater way. Let your kingdom come in me in a greater way. Lord, be, be Lord, be be my leader, be my, be my boss in a more effective way as I respond to you and follow you better. Spirit of God, would you form us to be the kind of people that bring you the glory that you deserve, Lord, who live lives that are aligned with your purpose in the world and who um, bear the fruit and touch the lives that, that matter so much to you, Lord. We ask you to bless your word today and, and let, it, let it be alive and active and accomplish what you want it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when you read a psalm, normally when you read the beginning of it, there, each psalm has a, an introduction to it, would be pretty normal. For example, if you flip the page or move up your device just a little bit and look at Psalm 3, it says this, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. 
And that's not unusual for a psalm to either address the situation that it may have been written within or instructions to the worship leader of what the melody is that the psalm goes to or other details like that. The thing that's interesting when we look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is that neither of them have any intro like that. And theologians say that the reason for that is that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really are the intro to the book of Psalms. They're they're the key to laying out the key themes of the book of Psalms, and they also address really the key themes of all of Scripture. In fact, at one point, uh, scholars would say that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were were one psalm before greater ordering and outlines and so forth were were brought to the scripture. But Psalm 1, which we hit two weeks ago, is about the man who reflects the heart and character of God. Psalm 2 is about the king who exercises the reign and the dominion of God. And we might ask, okay, well, that's interesting, but why does that matter? Well, It's significant because the themes of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are deeply rooted in the biblical narrative that begins in Genesis 1 and informs us of what God's story is in the world and our part in it. So it really matters. In fact, if you could put up the slide for me, please. Oh, you already beat me. Good. Uh, let's take a quick look. This is Genesis 1, 26 and 28. I'm sure it's familiar to many of you, but it's good to just look at it and review it. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And these core verses that we're so familiar with, you know, one of the challenges, if you've been a Christian for a while and you're familiar with the Bible, sometimes you read verses and you don't even see them anymore. You could almost recite it. You could memorize it. But we've stopped engaging it where we see what it actually says to us. And the important of these couple of verses is this, that they tell us what man was created to be, male and female. And I'm, I'm going to say man a lot. Please forgive me. Last time when I spoke, uh, the scripture says man, but it doesn't mean just men. It means mankind. It means men and women image bearers. So please understand that. I just want to be sensitive to the ladies here because this is not a message to men. It's a message to all of us. So uh, these key verses describe what man is created to be, and they describe who you and I are created to be. Image bearers who are called to reflect the character of God, the holiness and beauty of God, and the righteousness and the wisdom of God. And that's what Psalm 1, the picture of the righteous man, the blessed man, is all about. That's what we hit two weeks ago. But that's not all that there is. As God's image bearers, man's task is to exercise dominion over the earth. And dominion is one of those $20 words that, you know, you may not know. There used to be old dominion we'd go to when I lived in Virginia, and it was where you could go take, you know, take rides and uh, go with the kids and get sick eating the, the park food and things like that. So that's not what dominion means. Domin- okay, dominion means stewardships. It refers to the stewardships in life. And it, it's a part of the privilege and responsibility that's tied to the original commissioning of Adam and Eve that was given to them by God. And they, their future descendants, including you and me, have been given a mandate to extend God's garden kingdom to the ends of the earth. That's, That's what the creation mandate is all about. And though everything that God makes is very good, right? 
Not everything that God has made is finished yet. There's work to be done. The extent of God's purpose is not completed. The garden was amazing, but there's still a world outside of the garden, and it needs to be worked and kept and brought into the flourishing of God's kingdom reign. And what began in the garden is to be extended out into the entire world. And it was God's image bearers, you and I, who have been given the responsibility to get that done. This responsibility was given to man as what's called God's vice regents. And it's a, it's a formal governmental term, but it basically means God's delegated authority, his, his under authority who extends the will of, of the king. And Adam and, and Eve enjoyed in that relationship, in that communion with God, they, they enjoyed amazing relationship. And the Bible talks how they, they walk together in the cool in the evening uh, to, to talk and to plan and to imagine how the extension of God's kingdom might, might uh, play out the next day. I don't know about you, but the, the Hugheses are walkers. We, we like to go for walks. When I have the chance, we've got a number of grandkids here, but I've got a gajillion grandkids in other places. And when I have the privilege of being in town or they're in town with me, we're going for some walks, right? And so I'll grab one of them by the neck. I'll say, come on, you're with me, and we'll, we'll go for a walk around the block. And we, it doesn't take long before a walk turns into a very meaningful conversation. What's going on? Where, what's great? Where are your struggles? Uh, you know, how are you doing with your mom and dad? You know, I get, kind of get to play that, that key grandpa role that um, my parents can't play. But it, it's a picture of what God provided for Adam and Eve in the garden and what God has provided for you and me. A lot of times we read these stories and we think, isn't that great? Wouldn't it have been cool to be Adam walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden? And yet the, we have been drawn through Christ into the same intimacy that was lost in the fall. And God's desire for you and I is that we cultivate that relationship, that we, we do that evening walk with the Lord. Just like my grand boys and girls need some time with grandpa, we need some time with the Lord, big time, and way more than they need me. But uh, it, that's a very rare concept for most Christians to think, wait a minute, I'm really supposed to be led by the Lord. I really need to plan and think and imagine what he has in mind for the stewardships that he's entrusted to me tomorrow morning. So the plan was focused on a number of different things. It, w- it was to create life. What, a, what an amazing thing that God created us in his image and gave us the ability to create other human beings. I, don't, I mean, those of us who have had the, the privilege of being in a delivery room, I mean, you just think, what on earth is, is happening here and how, how could I have played a part in this? I mean, I, I, my mom and dad never created any human beings and yet they had children. My mom and dad were not godlike in very many ways, but in one way they were. They created somehow in the mystery of their love and their union. Human beings come out of the, out of the deal, and they're, they're eternal beings. They're image bearers. We, we play a role in bringing life. It, it, it's a wonder. It's a miracle, and it's, it's a gift for us to to see it as it really is in terms of God's store, overarching storyline, the importance of those beloved ones that God's entrusted to us and our responsibility to train them and mentor them and love them and envision them for what life is all about and how they find their place in it. We, we, God's design was for us to create order, to apply God's wisdom to the various stewardships or work either in our job or, or in our domestic ta- tasks. There's something beautiful about a clean garage, brothers, right? It's a wonder. Order, it's like you come in there, it's like, this is good. This is very good. This is very rare. This is, I haven't seen this in years. So, uh, you know, doing my garage is a big deal. But, but any, any task that's done well, we're being godlike, aren't we? We're, we're being image bearers who are bringing kingdom order 
to our various areas of responsibility. We're called to create society. And that begins in our families, doesn't it? It begins, it begins as singles, as parts, of young adults in the body of Christ, kids in relationship with their mom and dad. It begins in our marriages, in learning how to see the storyline of Scripture played out in our marriage as a husband who represents the love and sacrifice of the Savior and the wife who represents the church who responds and follows uh, her husband like, like the church follows Jesus. So we're, we're, we're agents of societal blessing. And that, that blessing in our family extends, right? So I talked about my grandkids, you know, those kids, grandkids. I, I've got a couple of greats, which is amazing. Uh, they don't know me yet. They're still little, little, little doodahs. But, but I look forward to having an impact on those, those little kids. And uh, they're part of my sphere of responsibility. They're part of the stewardships that have been entrusted to me. And, and we're part of a greater society as well. My, my wife has these strange people that are part of her family, right? They're weird or the fruitcake. No, 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 they're great. They're great. I got to look around. I hope nobody's here from the family this morning. No. Uh, no, they're great. As you guys have heard this, my mother always used to say, honey, they're all weird but you and me, and I wonder about you. That's a great, that's a great line. Uh, but we have extended society, don't we, in our families, the intermarriages, and cousins, and aunts, and, and then we have relationships at work. We have society, there's community there. There are people we work with, and there's people up and down the block, and we're agents of the blessing of God in our society. We're also called to be an extension of beauty, of beauty. And I know that's one of those words that guys think, oh, I, don't, I don't get the beauty thing. But there's something, for, for you nerds, there's something about beautiful code, isn't there? Have you ever looked at beautiful code and how it's laid out and it's just immaculate and it's clean? There's something about a sales team that is working right together, right? There's something about ladies that are involved in something together, a project where, where it's humming, where there is, there's beauty in it. There's something godly about, about life and order and society and the beauty that is certainly paintings and art because they all reflect the glory of God's creation. But really, every context of life is a context to reflect the beauty and the glory of the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there, is there anyone fairer? Is there anyone more beautiful than Jesus? I don't think so. And our job is to be so, uh, so drawn to him, so in love with him, so near to him, that, that in the same way that my wife and I tell the same jokes, I, I, I start to represent him. I think like he thinks. I speak his words. I I love people, and I'm free from myself to give my life away the way he gave his life for me. That's beauty. It's beauty. All these things are pictures of the gospel. That's why they matter so much. They're beautiful, okay? And in, in these two psalms, there's a highlighting of two foundational callings that have been entrusted to each one of us. In Psalm 1, it's the calling of the blessed man. And again, I'm talking mankind, male and female. The calling of the blessed man. And that's the God-given stewardship to engage all of life as new creations in Christ. To be the same person on Sunday morning that I am Thursday night bowling. Or I don't know, does anybody bowl anymore? Uh, but to be the same person, to be an integrated person. That's what the word integrity means. It means to be one. It means that there's no difference between me on Sunday morning and me on Thursday morning, okay? I'm the same, the same person. And so the calling of the blessed man that's highlighted in Psalm 1 is all about a life where Jesus is really the Lord, where his rule and his kingship and the beauty of the supernatural gift of God as new creations in Christ is alive and working and taking me over. 
That's what Psalm 1 is about, the blessed life. And that's the first part of our foundational callings. But Psalm 2 hits a different category that is equally as important. And this side of things is a bit unusual for the body of Christ, especially in our generation. It certainly wouldn't have been historically, but it is for us. And so it's what we're going to look at in Psalm 2. It's the calling of the kingdom man. The calling of the kingdom man. And this deals with the God-given responsibility to actively be a participant in the extension of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the world. To be an active participant in Christ's reign. To not see that as somebody else's job, but that's a part of every believer's calling. And it's in seeing and embracing these two core callings in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 2, that our lives become fully aligned with the grand narrative of Scripture, the true story of the world, the true story that our lives find true meaning giving, our, giving ourselves to, okay? And Psalm 2 is called a psalm of ascent, and that refers to the ascent and coronation of a new king. And readers would have seen this psalm as possibly referring to King David or referring to Solomon or one of David's heirs. But as you look at Psalm 2, take a minute, it's pretty clear that the the power and the scope of the king that's being referred to here uh, could really never be fulfilled by any ordinary Israeli king. It, it's impossible. And, and as we ponder it and we look at the, the breadth and the scope of this king, it becomes obvious that Psalm 2 is pointing us to the ultimate king in David's lineage, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at Psalm 2, we're going to hear four different voices making profound declarations. So we want to look at these together. The the chapter is nicely broken up into four sections of three verses. And the first section is the voice of the nations raging. The voice of the nations raging. That's verse one through three. The second is the voice of the sovereign God. The voice of the sovereign God. Verses four through six. Number three, three, yep. The voice of the enthroned Messiah. And then finally, the voice of God's messenger, the psalmist speaking to us. And there's an old Baptist preacher, a guy named H.A. Ironside, lived early 1900s. And let's hear it for guys who know how to preach and know how to see a scripture. And here's how he, he said the scripture was laid, laid out. He said, these are the voices of, first of all, rebellious humanity, and then the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit responding to the rebellious, rebellious world. That, that, is, that is good preaching. Uh, but I'm not that good, so I'm not going to take it that way. But uh, that's good stuff. L- let's jump in together. Number one, the voice of the nations raging. The, the first section here begins with a question. Why do the nations rage? And as you look at it, you realize, well, this is not really a question. This is really more of a statement of the great folly, the great uh, stupidity of man's rebellion against the sovereign God of all creation. It it couldn't be more ridiculous. And we may be tempted, I mean, we are media-fed cultures where the news is on, you know, we've got our devices, the radio is playing, we're engaged in the issues of the day, and we could lead to us thinking that, that the raging of our time and the raging against God and his world in our day is, is really unique, that it's never really been like this. But the scripture reveals <clears throat> that, that this is an age-old story of sin's corruption, <clears throat> excuse me, and the nation's opposition to the Lord and to the rule of his Christ. They used to tell us that evolution, uh, you know, is really going to make everything great. 
that we came out of amoebas, right? Or, and uh, if that could happen, then you, you and I'd get smarter and smarter and better and better and all those kind of things. Well, the 20th century is not a good century to look at <clears throat> in terms of the evolution of political leaders in particular. Uh, we've, we've, we've had dictators like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, slaughtering countless millions of people in their grasp of power. Here's an interesting study. This is from Open Door, which is a ministry to the persecuted church around the world. And this study shows some really unbelievable um, stats. This year alone, every month of this year, on the average, nearly 350 Christians per month were killed around the world for faith-related reasons. Nearly 350 a month died for their faith. Uh, Over 100 churches a month were either burned or attacked. Uh, Over 200, nearly 220 Christians a month are detained without trial and imprisoned. And I realize that, but that's, that's shocking, isn't it? And it says that the, the wicked kings, the, 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 the kings, the raging kings of, of the world, they plot in vain. The word plot's an interesting word because it ties us back to Psalm 1 two week, weeks ago. The word plot, the Greek word that's, that's translated plot, is the exact same word that's translated in Psalm 1 is meditates to ponder, to imagine. It's the same word. And it tells us that in Psalm 1, the righteous man meditates on God's word day and night, right? He's like a tree. He flourishes. He, he's he's the, the disciple who reimagines his life through the lens of who he is in Christ. But the wicked rulers meditate too. And they imagine. And they ponder but they ponder how to escape from the rule of God and how to get free from the restraints that God uh, brings to their, their world. And they take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And the word anointed literally means the Lord and his Messiah. That's the, the translation of the word the anointed. A reference to the coming deliverer and king who is going to make all things right, who's going to restore creation back to God's original intent, the Messiah. And the kings of the, the earth don't want this. Uh, all of the religions drive them crazy, but Jesus, it's Jesus and his church that they really hate. They really hate. And they say, let us burst their bonds. Let us cast off their cords. It so sounds like today, doesn't it? Uh, you know, the, the raging that is, is constant. People raging against God and his, his rule and his authority over their lives, just shaking their fists and raging against God's design in the family and covenantal, bound, covenantal binding together in marriage and shaking their hand and saying, I'm not going to do it. Societal morality, shaking their fist. They rage, amazingly, they rage against their own bodies and the God-given sexual borders that they've been created with. It's bizarre. And, and even beyond that, they rage for the freedom to slaughter their own sons and daughters either in the womb or anytime they please, even after the baby's born. And living in a raging world like you and I do, uh, it can really weigh heavily on us. It, it affects you, doesn't it? Just, just uh, our exposure to the media, just the intensity of our times. And it, that makes it all the more important that you and I really fix our eyes on God's Word and the true narrative of what's going on in the world. Because if, if we don't keep our eyes on the truth that sets us free, we're going to fix our eyes on another story that is going to produce fear 
anxiety, hopelessness, and we're going to get sidelined from what God's intent is for us as his, his children and his image bearers. And in, in the face of this raging world, the good news is that there's another voice that we can listen to, and that, that's the voice of the sovereign God. Okay, That's what we get when we read God's word, the voice of the sovereign God. And verse, verse 4 gives us God's perspective on the raging world. And it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> he who sits in the heavens laughs. He's not, you know, you picture that God must be dealing with stress and all of these issues the way that I do. And he's, he's, he's fretting, he's wringing his hands, he's pacing back and forth. He's, he's thinking, oh no, he's yelling at the TV like, like my wife Sharon does when there's some kind of news thing. She'll just, she'll just tear, in, tear into those poor souls. But uh, in fact, the Lord doesn't even get up out of his easy chair. He stays sitting, he, he hasn't moved one bit. He just laughs. Their attempts to rebel against him and his righteous authority are really beyond absurd. And in the face of all the rage, God speaks his definitive word to this fallen world. He says this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. Zion's one of those words that for most of us, not really sure what it means. It actually means a lot of different things. It's a very complex, multifaceted word. But in this context, I think it's it's just best to see Zion as a picture of Golgotha. It's the holy hill where the Lord's anointed is enthroned as king. And God's decreed the solution for the nation's raging. But there's only one solution, is there? There's really only one solution. God says, here's the solution. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the cross is the only place where all of the sin and the brokenness of the world can be dealt with. The cross is the place where the sinless Savior shed his blood for raging rebels just like me and like you. That's us, isn't it? It's not them. It's us that Jesus died for. And though Christ's sacrifice pays Honestly, it's unimaginable. It's an in, incalculable price that Jesus pays for our sin on the cross. Interesting, God doesn't say, I have set my Savior on Zion. Why is that? You would think that's what he would say. And we, we live in a world, you know, they, they say that worldview is like water and that uh, fish don't know what water is, and we don't really even know what our worldview is. It's so much a part of us that we don't even recognize it. We don't recognize it, but we're part of an American gospel narrative that tells a very different story from what the gospel tells. It tells the story of the Savior who died for my sin, which is so awesome, but the reason he died for my sin is for a very different purpose. It's so that I can enjoy my best life now. So that I can live a life of, of self-fulfillment and materialism and ease and uh, freedom from responsibility and independence from the shackles and the limitations that other people give me. The more money I can make, the more I can do whatever I dang well please, right? And there's a different storyline. The American gospel narrative, we, we don't even know how deeply we're steeped in it. We've been born into it, being born in America. And, and there's a whole retooling that we need that can only come as we really feed on God's world. And we realize that there's a profoundly different storyline that we're called to join. 
And it, it leads to profoundly different ways of living. It leads to profoundly different impact in our world than what the, the American Christian church is having on the world. Guess what kind of impact they're having? Like, like none. If anything, people don't respect Christians anymore. Uh, they're hypocrites. Accurate, probably. But, but God has called us to be a church that's profoundly different than what the American gospel narrative tells us. The true biblical narrative is the story of the faultless Son of God who through unimaginable, unimaginable yada love, and, and if you didn't hear the first message, I unpacked this, this concept, yada it's just a, be- a beautiful word that talks about God's ability to see us, to, to know our condition, to deeply connect and engage with the reality of our situation and to act for love's sake to solve the problem. That's yada. We, we serve a yada God who is forming a yada people who are motivated by very, very different values, who are for, whose souls are moved by very, very different things, whose pocketbook reflects very, very different values. It's awesome. And it, it's through God's unimaginable yada love, the, the love of the Savior who freely offered his sinless life, the only payment precious enough to pay for the sin of raging humanity like you and me. And Jesus, the Lord's anointed, we've got, we've got to understand what happened on the cross. Jesus, the Messiah, the, the word Messiah means king. The Lord's anointed king was cloaked in robes of royal purple as they beat him and mocked him. He was given a reed scepter as they mocked him and they beat him until he was unrecognizable. They gave him a crown of thorns to mock the statement that he was the king of the Jews. And the declaration over his head as they, as they nailed him to the cross was this. This is the king of the Jews. And though it's tr- that's partially true, Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's not just the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of the whole world. And the cross, we've got to understand that the cross is the throne from which Jesus rules and establishes his kingdom. From the cross, Jesus conquers sin, death, hell, and Satan. From the cross, he declares, it is finished. It's over. The price for our sin is broken so that we can be restored to God and his purpose. Even the thief on the cross was somehow able to look over and behold Jesus' beaten, bloodied body and see that there was something happening there. there was this, this was not a, a, a normal human being. And he said, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. He could see Jesus for who he was. And Jesus is not just the crucified Savior. Jesus is the crucified King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why God doesn't say, I've set my Savior on Zion. He says, I've set my King on Zion, my holy hill. And through his resurrection, Christ's reign as King has been inaugurated. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. He's risen from the dead. Sin is conquered. Satan is defeated. Jesus is risen, and he's Lord of lords and King of kings. That's the the message of the resurrection. And God's kingdom has once again 
broken in on earth as it is in heaven. It happened. It's happening now in the resurrection. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. And we live in a mysterious time of the already, the kingdom's come, and yet the kingdom hasn't fully come. And I don't know how all that stuff works. I know that certainly if it isn't perfect today. I'm not perfect today, and I know you guys aren't, right? So there's this mysterious, the kingdom has come, and yet the kingdom is coming, and there will come a time when we see Jesus face to face, when he returns and brings the new heavens and the new earth, where All things will be made new perfectly, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign perfectly, and the world will be perfect again. We can take that reality. That's the the final chapter of the storyline. We can take that story to the bank, and we're called to live today in light of the reality of that day. We're called to invest in the stewardships that God's given us today, the relationships God's given us today, the areas of inconvenience and hassle that that we deal with today in light of the reality that God is going to make all things new and that the resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ, which was declared in his resurrection, is coming in greater and greater measure until the day that we see him face to face. And we're called to be a part of that. Our lives are called to be a foretaste of that. Who's gone to Baskin-Robbins before? Don't you love those little pink spoons? That's the foretaste spoon, right? That means, that means I can go in there, you know, I just work my way down the line. Let's try that one. Mm, I'm not sure. Let's try this one. Mm, I'm struggling. Let's try this again. But those little spoons are a picture of our lives. We're called to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God. That when people taste you, they taste the glory, the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. When they see the way you make choices, when they see your priorities, when they see your checkbook, they see, some, they see something they think, what is that? that? Is that person from outer space? What? They're living for a completely different value system than I am. They're, they're people of the kingdom of God. They see something that others don't see. And it changes everything about how they live and the choices that they make. It profoundly transforms the kind of worker we are, transforms the kind of husband and wife we are, transforms the kind of friend that we are. And isn't that what we want? Don't you want that? Don't you, don't, don't you want to live your life in alignment with the true story of really what's going on in the world? Do you, really, do you want to be duped? Do you want to buy in with the American gospel narrative that is such a wishy-washy, worthless, fruitless, godless value system. No, let's not do it. Let's be a part of an authentic church that really knows Jesus and walks according to his word, who really become disciples, which is what the scripture says that we're supposed to be, who really learn what it means to have Jesus on the throne, to really follow him and to have his directive be our yes, sir. And we learn, we learn how to do things the way that he wants. We want that. I know we want, you want that. I know you do. Okay, this leads us. How are we doing? Okay, good. This, this brings us to the third voice, the voice of the enthroned Messiah. And now we hear, this, this gets a little bit into deep water. The phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Honestly, we could take a week and just deal with the mystery of the Trinity, the wonder, the, the somehow relationship among the Godhead, affection within the Godhead, uh, roles within the Godhead. God the Father sends the Son, the Son goes, uh, uh, the Son follows the Father's plan, the Spirit fills believers, and somehow now we are joined. Somehow we're caught up into this mystery of the eternal Godhead. It's, it's, a, it's a wonder. So we're not going to be able to cover that very, very good. I apologize. But that would be a good one if you want to throw a question toward the, uh, the podcast. Maybe uh, I'll have Jared answer one of those questions for you, and I'll, I'll, I'll dodge it. I'll, I'll cough and need to get a drink of water or something like that. But... Um, where am I at? We hear here the son's response as the father 
pronounces the son as king. And the immediate response that we see from the Savior is to give himself to the next phase of the mission, to, to jump in to what's, what's next. And it, it, we see that it's time to tell the world of God's decree, the decree that Jesus is king. The world needs to hear what's happened on the cross. The world needs to be rescued from their sins. And there's a decree that we've been entrusted to declare that Jesus is king. And the the Father affirms his delight in the Son and the the Son's eternal state of favor, of sonship. The, the, The phrase that says, you are my son this day, you've begotten me. Jesus was never begotten. Jesus was, there was never a time when Jesus wasn't God and then became God. It's an expression of, it's words to help us understand things about God that we really can't understand. But it's something about the affection of the Father, about the, the eternal nowness of the Father's affection and love with words like adoption uh, thrown in there to communicate the belovedness, the blessedness, the unity, the delight in the relationship between the, the Father and the Son. And uh, there's plenty of books that will do a better job on that one than me. It's, it is deep water. But in celebration of the Son's triumph on the cross, the Father declares, ask of me, And I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And this is one of these things that it's so amazing that there's something so amazing about the union that happens between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Where somehow the, the Lord's decree, a decree that's been given to him to proclaim, is now becomes a part of our decree. Somehow as his people, we're joined to the same mission, the same purpose that Jesus is called to. And Christ's decree becomes the decree of the church. Christ's calling becomes our calling. And, and Jesus is entrusted, and Jesus entrusts the next phase of the mission to his disciples. And we all know this. We all know Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And this is another one of these verses that if we're careful, not careful, we're so familiar with it that we read it, but we don't, we don't read it. We don't understand it. It just it, it doesn't have the impact that it should. So let, let's look at this together, and I'll read it to you if you don't have it pulled up or if you can pull it up easy. Let's do that. We need to look at this section of Scripture with, with fresh eyes and, and hear it with opened ears. And this is Jesus, what Jesus' final commissioning is to his disciples before his ascension. And Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let me say it again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And there's a couple of important takeaways here that really apply to what we've been looking at at Psalm 2. And the first one is this, that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Jesus is in control of every situation, every king, every conflict, every challenge, every raging, Jesus is king over all of it. He has authority over all of it. And there's nothing happening today or tomorrow or until the day when we see Jesus face to face that Jesus is not the sovereign Lord over. There's nothing that's gonna hit you or me that has not been filtered through the loving fingers of the Lord Jesus Christ for our good and for his glory and for the good of those that look on to our lives. He is in total authority. He doesn't have some authority. He has all authority. Jesus is in control of everything, everyone, everywhere. Okay? Those are big concepts. 
What's the point? The point is don't let the raging of the world distract you from trusting God and his good work that he's doing. He knows he's the good work that he's begun in you. He's going to bring it to completion. Trust him. Don't get caught off guard with all of the raging and all the complaining and all of the agendas that seem to be such a priority. No, we've got a priority to know the Lord, to follow him, and to be a part of his purpose in the world. Don't get caught up with a narrative that leads to wrong priorities and wrong actions. Fear not. Laugh with the Lord. Laugh as they rage. Close you. you know, how are you going to have the, the, the hearty soul to be able to do that? Close your device and open your Bible. Close your device and open your Bible. If, you have, if you're living on a diet of crackers and water spiritually, you are, bye-bye. You're going to be caught with the waves of the ragings of the culture. It, we have to be rooted or we're going to be washed away. We've got to be rooted in God's word. We've got to be rooted among God's people. We've got to be rooted in God's purpose so that we look through the lens of the gospel narrative to inform every arena of our life so we can engage it for the glory of God. Dependent, praying, weak. I get it, okay? That's me. But fear not. Laugh with the Lord. Close the device and open your device. Second, when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, this is another one of these phrases we've heard. You know, if you've been in the church for a while, you've heard evangelistic messages, you've heard the call to the nations, and let's hear it for people that have gone there. We support the Hare family who are Bible translators in in North Africa, and I mean, they're the most godly people I've ever met, I think. I can't believe that they, they do what they do and live with the priorities that they live. They, they just convict me. It's beautiful. They're a picture of the gospel, self-sacrifice for the lost of the world, for a, for a people that don't have a Bible and they're giving their lives so that there can be a translation of the word of God to that family. How beautiful. But when we read the scripture, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We have to be careful that the word capital G, capital O, is not the only word that we say there. The Great Commission may not just mean go. And you think, wait a minute, that's, how can that be? That's, that's what it says, go into all the world. Well, actually, the primary word in the Great Commission is not the word go. It's the command, make disciples make disciples. And D.A. Carson, who's probably one of the most brilliant modern-day scholars of the New Testament, way smarter than anybody in this room or anybody that'll probably ever be in this room, interprets, translates the Great Commission this way. And I think this is beautiful. I'm so glad that it's someone like D.A. Carson that's so credible who did this and, and not so I can use it because this is really important. Here's how Carson translates Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He says this. Here's what it means. As you are going, as you are going, wherever you are, even unto the nations, make disciples. Let me say it again. As you are going, we're we're all going, aren't we? Where are you going? Where are you going today? As you're going, wherever you are, as far you may be going to the end of the world, you may be going out, out of the country here. You may be grabbing a plane. At, wherever you are, wherever you're going, into the ends of the world, make disciples. And what does that mean? It means that every context of life is a context where we're forming relationships, we're creating bonds, we're loving and caring for people with a larger storyline that informs us that every person needs to be restored to the king and to his purpose in the world. And so as we're doing our job, as we're with our extended family, as we're reaching out and making friends in our neighborhood, we're building friendships with a greater purpose. And it isn't that we're just trying to use people to close the deal. We remember where we were before we knew Jesus and how grateful we are that there was a friend who cared enough to tell us. 
if nobody told us, just think where you and I would be today if nobody told us. We're going to tell people, right? As you're going. And the challenge is, I mean, I'm a pastor guy. Now I'm a goofy pastor guy because I'm part business person, part, part pastor. But the challenge for guys like me is I spend all my time with stinky believers. And, and I, I don't have as many unbelieving friends as I need. I'm so jealous of those of you who live the majority of your life in the marketplace where you have teammates and you have friends that you can build and you have opportunities to model something profound for unbelievers. You, you know, they say that 98% of the people who come to know Jesus come to know Christ through a family member or a long-term friend, trusted friend. They don't come through Christian TV, okay? God bless Christian TV. They don't come through somebody dropping something from a balloon, the messages. They, they come through relationships, and that means God's called us to be close with people. It means he's called us into relationships with people who, who don't know the Lord, to love them, to care about them, to put ourselves in their shoes. You know, we think, oh, I can't relate with them. What, 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 do you, what do you mean you can't relate with people who don't know the Lord? Do you know what the, what the cross says about you and I? The cross could not say more about us in terms of our, our rage, our rebellion against God. The fact that the Son of God had to die for my sin says a lot about me. I should be able to relate with almost any kind of person very, very easily and to be able to extend the same kind of grace that God extended a, a wretched guy like me very easily. We're not that different. We're, all, we're really all the same. The thing that's different is amazing grace, right? Amazing grace is not anything we're better. Not, we're not cleaner. We're not. No, it's amazing grace. That's, that's what's better. Okay. And the beauty of the commission that Christ has called us to join is this, that it begins right where you are today. We're commissioned today. We're commissioned tomorrow morning as you go to work or as you're raising kids or as you're engaged in whatever responsibilities you may be in serving the city. It's where you are today with the people that you already know, where you are in stewardships that have been entrusted to you by God that really matter. And and it's our calling to reflect the yada love and care of the Father and the reality of his kingdom to everyone that we know and serve in those arenas. That's the mission. Until every eye sees the lights come on and they see the beauty of the kingdom of God, until every ear hears the good news of the Savior and every knee bows to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as we conclude here, the final voice is the voice of the psalmist or the, the voice of the Holy Spirit. And just how, how kind that in the face of such a sober declaration of Christ's kingship, we hear the Spirit of God coming alongside the raging kings of the earth and appealing to them, whispering in their ear with kindness, O kings, be wise. Don't be a fool. Be warned. Be rescued. O ruler of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. That that phrase, rejoice with trembling, it just makes me think of my wedding day. There's something about the awesomeness of, I mean, this is so, so great, and I am so terrified right now. And that's just nothing compared to the reality of face-to-face with the king, with the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we need reality is to rejoice with trembling and to, how appropriate, both rejoicing in God's grace and trembling in his holiness. And then it says this interesting phrase, kiss the son. What does that mean? Kiss the son. Well, it refers to the part of the king's coronation ceremony where the subjects of the king would draw near to the king and would bow and would kiss the signet ring that symbolized the king's rule over the province or over the nation, and really, ultimately, his rule over them. And our king invites us, while there is still time, within this gracious decree of the gospel to draw near, to kiss the Son, 
and the king will welcome our sincere submission to his gracious and loving rulership. And the last phrase, we end Psalm 2 the way we began Psalm 1 with this beautiful word, blessed. Blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed. Oh, how fortunate. How happy is the man who bows his knee to the king. There's no refuge from the king. There's only refuge in the king. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.